Hello, everyone, and welcome to this podcast. Today, we will be discussing drug pricing reforms and limits on agency action. In recent months leading up to the midterm elections, we've seen a flurry of activity around drug pricing. And now in the wake of midterms, we know that there remains increasing bipartisan interest in the topic. We also have seen high levels of agency action around drug pricing in recent months. And our panel today is going to talk about some of the key recent events and the fundamental question of how far agencies can go in regulating drug pricing. My name is Margot Hall. I'm a partner in the Ropes and Gray Healthcare Group based in Washington, D.C., and I focus my practice on drug pricing and issues of market access around pharmaceuticals. I'm thrilled to be joined today by my two colleagues, also in the D.C. office with me, David Alt and Stephanie Webster. David brings to bear a real insider's perspective on how agencies think about questions. He spent almost a decade at the Department of Health and Human Services, including serving as director of the Division of Financial Risk within the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, also known as CMMI. Stephanie Webster is an administrative litigator who works on litigation and non-litigation matters that involve the central question of limits of agency action. Among other accomplishments, Stephanie led her team to victory before the Supreme Court in the landmark case Alina involving Medicare notice and comment rulemaking requirements. Stephanie also, earlier in her career, served within government in the Office of General Counsel at HHS. So I'm going to start today by briefly describing three key recent events that relate to drug pricing, and then we're going to collectively discuss what these mean as we think about agency action in this space. So first, I'll talk about the Inflation Reduction Act and its drug price negotiation program. Second, accumulators and recent litigation challenging the lawfulness of agency policy that permits these programs. And third, the recent executive order from President Biden directing CMMI to test new models to lower drug pricing. So first, The Inflation Reduction Act has received significant attention in recent months, particularly its drug price negotiation program. For the first time, Medicare will have the authority to directly negotiate prices with drug manufacturers for certain high-spend Medicare drugs. Although it's a scaled-back version of some of the earlier proposed negotiation models, this new program is aimed to drive significantly lower prices for Medicare It will go into effect starting in 2026 for Part D covered products and in 2028 for Part B covered products. And each year, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services will select a new cohort of drugs that will become subject to a negotiated price or what the IRA refers to as the, quote, maximum fair price. Although it's referred to as a negotiation, This maximum fair price effectively operates as a price control. It is set at a statutory ceiling price and is negotiated from there. And in order to drive manufacturers to the negotiating table, the IRA imposes substantial excise taxes in addition to new civil monetary penalties. So if, for instance, a manufacturer refuses to negotiate or refuses to agree to this maximum fair price, the manufacturer must pay an excise tax equal to up to 1,900% of the selected drug price for every unit sold during the non-compliant period, or it has to terminate its Medicare Part D and Medicaid drug rebate program agreements 
thereby losing all the benefits of participation in those programs for its whole portfolio. The contours of the IRA are to be developed through rulemaking. We already see indications that CMS is staffing up in order to work on implementation of the statute. And the statute itself has a fairly broaded worded provision regarding preclusion of judicial and administrative review around topics such as the determination of a unit, the selection of drugs subject to negotiation, and the determination of the maximum fair price. The second development of note that pertains to agency action is around accumulators. The HIV and Hepatitis Policy Institute and other patient advocacy organizations filed suit in late August in the D.C. District Court. They challenged the 2021 Notice of Benefit and Payment Parameters Rule that permitted Affordable Care Act-regulated commercial plans to adopt accumulator programs. Under accumulator programs, insurers can exclude manufacturer copay assistance from patients' deductibles and out-of-pocket maximum. In the 2021 final rule, the agency authorized insurers to determine themselves whether they would count that copay assistance towards the deductible and out-of-pocket maximum. The plaintiffs in the litigation have challenged this agency action on three grounds. First, they said it conflicts with the plain language of the Affordable Care Act, which defines cost-sharing by reference to expenditures that are required of plan members, not by reference to who pays those amounts. Second, they argue it's inconsistent with the agency's own regulations that define cost sharing as any expenditure required by or on behalf of an enrollee for an essential health benefit. And therefore, they argue there's an internal inconsistency that's unresolved within the agency's own regulations. And third, they argue that the agency's 2021 rulemaking was arbitrary and capricious in violation of the Administrative Procedure Act for various reasons. Among others, they said allowing insurers to determine the definition of this text is by definition arbitrary. The same text cannot mean opposite things. And that the agency didn't explain its reason to deviate from prior rules. Um, and that patients themselves have had legitimate reliance interests under the prior rule, and those, those concerns have been unaddressed by the agency. Their requested relief is to set aside the rule, and they've asked for a declaratory and injunctive relief. And third, on October 14th, President Biden issued an executive order directing HHS to test new models to lower drug prices. The executive order language compels three steps by the Secretary of HHS. First, the Secretary is required to consider whether to test through the Innovation Center new healthcare payment and delivery models for Medicare and Medicaid that would lower drug costs and promote access to innovative therapies, including ways to lower cost sharing and or support value-based payment. Second, the secretary is required to not later than 90 days from the order, so by mid-January, submit a report to the assistant to the president for domestic policy listing the selected models and also specifying a plan and a timeline for testing. So expect that by mid-January based on the terms of the executive order. 
And third, following the submission of that report, the Secretary is required to take appropriate actions to test any healthcare payment and delivery models discussed in the report. So three pretty sweeping um, developments when it comes to drug pricing, certainly things we're keeping close watch on here. But Dave, I, I wanted to bring you in at this point and hear your perspective on how how do you think about this executive order and how it changes the calculus for drug pricing? Yeah, thanks, Margo. You know, I think the executive order is more than anything just a stamp of approval from this administration supporting, you know, uh, the activities that are already coming out of the IRA um, and really uh, to continue to support the work of the Innovation Center wants to do on drug pricing. So historically, there have been um, some limited attempts in both Part B and Part D at the Innovation Center to test new ways of paying for drugs, um, and they haven't been very successful. So I think the executive order is really meant to be a statement to ever, all of the stakeholders involved um, that this is something that this administration is going to continue to make a priority for the last two years of the administration. And so you know, what I mean by that is I think uh, along, as you said, the 90-day report that will be coming out, I think that there's already um, models in the works that are going to be announced along with that report. That would be my guess. Um, you know, the development of a model at the Innovation Center generally isn't something that can happen overnight. There is a uh, close to two-year process from sort of inception of an idea to implementation of a model. And so, um, what I'm thinking the EO is doing is, again, signaling that they're probably uh, far enough along in that process with some new ideas that we could expect an announcement to come that will uh, be for programs that will start either mid-2023 or um, beginning of uh, January 2024. So that's a pretty close timeline, actually. Um, that would be some more changes afoot in the relatively near future. I know, Dave, we saw earlier versions of this Most Favored Nation proposal in demonstration programs. Those earlier versions looked at international reference prices as benchmarks rather than kind of what we ended up seeing in the Inflation Reduction Act, which looks more at domestic and VA pricing. But now that we have the IRA, which institutes direct negotiation of drug pricing and institutes price benchmarks, does that temper the risk? in your view of having a bolder demonstration program? In some ways, yes, for sure. So under the authority of the IRA, CMS, including the Innovation Center, right, have statutory authority to, you know, Im implement some of these price negotiation changes. I think that that gives some amount of cover that didn't exist before with most favored nation. Um, and I think that if that is also paired with the broad authority that the Innovation Center has in terms of the limits on administrative and judicial review um, of, you know, design and implementation of models. I think the cover is quite broad and that um, the agency will probably use this as an opportunity to maybe test some things getting out in front of certain aspects of the IRA. So as you mentioned before, the Part B um, drug price or drug negotiation um, components don't go into effect until 2028. Uh, so perhaps the Innovation Center is going to want to get ahead of that and do some work in the Part B space to kind of inform 
what the implementation of the IRA in Part B could look like as we get closer to 2028. I see. I mean, the other thing that you mentioned that's really interesting is the also seemingly quite broad preclusion of administrative and judicial review provision that pertains to CMMI. I know that there have been many questions circulating in recent months since the enactment of the IRA around what does that mean, right? Are there still limits even when there is a more broadly worded statutory provision in that regard? I mean, are there examples of demonstration programs that have been subject to legal challenge for being too broad or contravening the statute in some fundamental way? There have. Historically, um, the majority of models that have been um, shut down or killed before or during implementation are not based on uh, judicial review, but based on um, political or, or, you know, pressure out in the sort of the media sphere, right? So we had that with the part, the prior Part B drug program during the Obama administration that never went live because of blowback from uh, industry and from various stakeholders. Um, and so most recently, though, we do have with Most Favored Nation, the first real legal challenge to the Innovation Center's authority. And I think that that was sort of a wake-up call to the Innovation Center that, you know, there actually may start to be some um, organizations that are going to challenge um, the actions of the Innovation Center if they think they are too broad. And what I expect that to lead to is the Innovation Center to NCMS more broadly to really focus on implementing a lot of these new models or programs through rulemaking. So the Innovation Center has some models which they have um, rolled out through rulemaking and some which they just do through direct contracts with the participants in the models. I think that in this space, we're almost certain to see um, rulemaking to, to give them a sort of additional cover on that front, particularly because I think that to successfully implement models in this space, they will need to be uh, mandatory. And um, as history has shown, mandatory models are not going to get off the ground without rulemaking, notice and comment rulemaking. Well, and so that leads to key questions for you, Stephanie, right? You tend to enter the scene when things go wrong or when individuals are working to better understand the contours of agency action and what is permissible. Um, one of the most pivotal cases illuminating the bounds on agency action in the Medicare context is your case, the Alina case. So can you share your thoughts about Alina, how it's relevant to this, and how we might think about rulemaking in the drug pricing context? Happy to discuss that, Margot. Um, Alina has, in my view, gotten the agency's attention, and the agency has focused on implementation of Alina and the need for notice and comment under certain circumstances. In December 2020, then HHS uh, General Counsel Robert Charo actually issued an advisory opinion on the implementation of Alina. Uh, that opinion concluded that a substantive legal standard, um, which is what was at issue in Alina, announces new binding parameters governing any legal right or obligation relating to Medicare benefits, payments, or eligibility, and sets forth a requirement not otherwise mandated by statute or regulation. According to this memo, any effort to regulate drug pricing 
would need to go through notice and comment rulemaking. This memo is still on the books, hasn't been rescinded by the Biden administration, although we don't know exactly what the Biden administration might be doing with respect to this memo and whether we can expect some some change going forward. Well, that leads to a question about what are the contours around notice and comment rulemaking? I know oftentimes when rules are issued, the trade associations will you know, issue their comments. And at times companies might wonder, do I really need to engage in sort of notice and comment rulemaking? Can you, and then perhaps Dave as well, after, based on your perspective, being inside the agency recently, you know, share insights on what is the importance of actually submitting comments when there is that notice and comment opportunity? How does the agency review and consider those comments? And how do those factor into the whole landscape of really ratifying and ensuring appropriate limits around agency action? Sure. Under the Administrative Procedure Act, or APA, as it's commonly called, uh, the agency is required to consider the comments on a, on a proposed rule and to incorporate into the rules adopted what's called a concise general statement of their basis and, and purpose. That statutory requirement in the APA, it doesn't read as being that significant. But there is a lot of case law uh, on what is required by an agency under which an agency um, rule or decision um, could be arbitrary and capricious and therefore invalid if the agency hasn't adequately explained um, its result and responded to relevant and significant public comments. Um, there's also case law making very clear that an agency has to consider in important factors, has to consider the connection between the facts found and the action taken. And so comments on rules are very important. Uh, of course, as you've mentioned, there is uh, a provision that precludes administrative and judicial review over certain facets of decision-making that's coming out of CMMI, for example. But nonetheless, it's important for folks to be commenting on anything that's of, of importance to them, um, first, because they, they should be heard by the policymakers, but also to the extent that there is any prospect of a, of a challenge, a legal challenge down the road, um, there's a need to, to lay that groundwork. And Dave, what's your experience in terms of how agencies actually review and make sense of the comments and respond to them? Yeah, sure. So, you know, echoing everything that Stephanie said, um, in, in reviewing them, they really do consider every single comment. Um, and I think it's important to note that there are major commenters, such as the larger associations, um, that get flagged uh, and really noticed and paid attention to by the agency, but also individual organizations. So, the, just the sheer volume of responses on a particular topic or a particular point within a regulation it, it, it is noticed and actually does weigh into the rulemaking process. And beyond that, you know, especially when we get into a situation where we don't have as many options for um, administrative or uh, judicial challenges, the, it's really important to think about it in terms of how it builds a relationship with the agency. If an organization wants to go in and meet with the administrator or a deputy administrator or whomever on some issue, but hasn't commented as an organization on that issue in the past, 
they're not going to have as much standing with the leadership of the agency um, if, uh, compared to what if they had already done that. Uh, so I, I think that's really important uh, from that standpoint as well, just to, to get on the record. Well, that's a really helpful dimension to think about the relationship building as well, right? And being a constructive part of potential refinements to rulemaking or clarifying potential limits, right, on what agencies can do consistent with the statute. Um, I, I wanted to touch on a topic that I think we each have alluded to or um, picked up as a thread, but look at it in a little more focused way, which is the language in the Inflation Reduction Act around the preclusion of administrative and judicial review of various determinations related to the government drug price negotiation program. Uh, initially, Stephanie, can you break down the difference between preclusion of judicial and administrative review? What's the relevant distinction there between those two? Of course. Uh, the preclusion of administrative review means that a party cannot challenge a determination or a decision before the agency itself. And, and typically, such a challenge would be through an administrative appeals process. But um, CNS has also taken the position in certain contexts that, that preclusion of administrative review even prevents voluntary action by the agency to correct errors. On the other hand, the preclusion of judicial review uh, strips the courts of their usual authority or jurisdiction to hear challenges to federal agency decisions. I see. And so then when you look at this language that seems somewhat broad in its, its scope, um, where does this leave parties if they're aggrieved by an agency decision that let's just assume falls within the the bounds of that language, or at least there's a question regarding it's within the bounds of, of that particular language. You know, how, how do you look at that language? Where have courts held that preclusion is not, in fact, complete, and there are still other um, arguments that might be leveraged? Well, unfortunately, preclusion and review provisions uh, like the one that um, exists in the uh, statute authorizing CMMI does leave regulated parties with more limited options to challenge agency action decisions, uh, depending on the nature of decision. And it's really important to look carefully at what is covered and what's not covered by the preclusion of review provision and the, the administrative process used to make the determination in assessing your options, for example. In your view, does this change the prospect of agency rulemaking? I've heard some speculation that maybe agencies feel empowered to not go through notice and comment rulemaking when a statute has a preclusion provision like the one we've seen in the Inflation Reduction Act. You know, do we think that agencies might be less inclined to undertake notice and comment rulemaking if they feel like they have a statutory preclusion provision that they can point to? Well, my view is that it could alter the nature of the notice and comment rulemaking and also could have an effect on the responses by the agency to the comments. For example, the MFN rule that was issued also at the tail end of the Trump administration, uh, that was adopted as an interim final, which perhaps would not have occurred otherwise. Um, that rule was also uh, challenged. <laughs> and despite a preclusion of review provision or there, uh, the, the parties challenging the rule were able to over, overcome the preclusion of review provision, uh, mostly because the action taken by the agency there 
just so clearly exceeded the agency's statutory authority, in, in my view. Um, so there's an example of where the agency might have pushed the envelope a bit, but in doing so got got um, some major pushback and ultimately uh, did not prevail as a result of the, the procedural um, irregularities there. And Dave, any perspective from you? Do you think we're going to see notice and comment rulemaking around the Inflation Reduction Act, not Withstanding the fact that there is a statutory provision that addresses preclusion. Yeah, I do. Again, it just because it, it does give more cover from any challenges. Um, and also just, you know, particularly in this space, there are so many stakeholders involved between obviously med the Medicare program, the Medicare trust fund, the patients, the providers, uh, the manufacturers, PBMs. Like there's so many interested uh, parties that they want to make sure that they are covered in, in receiving responses. And frankly, in a situation like this, they want those comments. They're interested in those comments, meaning, you know, when, when they haven't uh, done notice and comment rulemaking in this space, they've, uh, they've still put out an RFI to try to solicit input. And so if they were going to go through that process anyway, it would benefit them to just do uh, rulemaking instead. So that, that's absolutely what I expect here. So it seems that we have more to come in terms of agency action in the months to come, especially as folks are thinking about implementation of the IRA. We have the executive order and I think can also anticipate the CMMI report on prospective drug pricing demonstrations by mid-January. Just to end on maybe a more constructive and optimistic note, Dave, can we think about demonstration programs in a more constructive manner? Can we think of them as friend rather than foe, for instance? And, you know, if so, what's the best way to think about that, right? How can how can folks who want to perhaps come up with better solutions to challenges regarding affordability and access, but don't necessarily want to always be on the receiving end and want to propose something affirmative, how might they think about sort of engaging with CMMI constructively? Yeah, so I'm completely biased having come out of the Innovation Center, but I think it should be viewed as a, a friend as well as the programs that come out of it. Um, what is key is is not being uh, responsive, but actually, you know, being at the front edge of, of their developing of policy. And the way you do that is um, by going in and talking with them coming up with an idea is putting, I, mean, I go in all the time to meet with them and present ideas on behalf of clients because that's what the people at the Innovation Center want to hear. That's what they want to know because they don't know what's happening on the ground. They, we sit at desks at the Innovation Center, you know, coming up with policy and, and hoping that we are, um, you know, a, accomplishing what we intend to do. And so that feedback is important and and will actually influence the shape of a model. And so to get ahead of it and be proactive means that your organization's needs or any you know speed bumps or hurdles that an organization faces can and likely may very well may be addressed in a model. It could be important as well for stakeholders to comment even on um on guidance that gets issued by the agency, because what we what we know from the Alina litigation uh, and that the the court emphasized is that the label that the agency gives a particular document or publication does not 
decide whether it's a, a, a rule that needs to go through notice and comment or not. So I would encourage um, stakeholders to comment on anything the agency does, including in the ways that, that Dave described. Another really important takeaway, I think uh, a lot of us really look for the clear solicitations for comment. And even when we recognize that there might be sub-regulatory guidance that seems truly substantive and altering of seeming obligations in nature, wouldn't always intuitively think I should be formally commenting on this as well. That's all the time we have for today's episode. And we want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. For more information about our practice or other topics of interest, please visit our healthcare and life sciences practice pages at www.ropespray.com. You can listen to our podcast or other Ropes Talk podcasts in our podcast newsroom that's available on our website, or you can subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. If you have any questions about topics that we discussed today, I think I speak on behalf of Stephanie, Dave as well. When I say please feel free to reach out to any of us. Thanks again for listening.